Thank you. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. Thank you, choir, for leading us in such a great time of worship. Genesis chapter 3, and uh, go ahead and hold your spot there. We're going to recap a little bit of the first two chapters of Genesis here in just a moment, uh, but chapter 3 is where we're going to be spending most of our time today. So as I mentioned earlier, we started a new series last Sunday. It's only going to span four weeks, and so we're kind of halfway through after today, um, but it's called The Big Story, and the premise of the series is uh, really up against the, the, pay, uh, the, the normity of the story of Scripture, so many stories that are wrapped up there, not only just in the Gospels or just New Testament, but Old and New Testament as well. So many different stories help us understand who God is and how He works in this world, who we are and what we need in regards to a relationship with God. And yet overarching all of that is a big story and kind of like a play when it's broken up into different acts, Acts 1, Acts 2, so forth. Uh, we're doing in this series as well, is that we're breaking up the big story of the Bible into smaller pieces. Act 1, last Sunday we started with creation. Uh, today we're going to look at Act 2, which is fall or the fall. And then Act 3 next Sunday will be redemption. And then Act 4, uh, which will be the following Sunday, will be restoration. In a sense, you can kind of word it this way, that Act 1 creation talks about how we're made. Uh, Act 2, the fall, talks about how we're broken. Acts three or Act 3, which is redemption, talks about how that brokenness is paid for. And then Act 4, restoration, talks about how ultimately God is going to restore, uh, he's going to fix, but even more than that, he's going to replace. And so we're going to get into all that as we move forward in this series. But today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, looking specifically at Act 2 in the big story, that being the fall. So last Sunday we started with creation for a reason, because that's where the Bible starts. And, and in Genesis 1 and 2, we don't find every answer to every question that we could possibly ask. The Bible is not written to answer every question that we may ask. It's written for a different purpose, and that's to tell us as much as what we need to know about who God is, how much we need him, and how to have a relationship with him, and then live for his glory. And, and, and so we don't find every question that's going to be answered in the Bible, especially in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But we find that in creation, that there's... A Quite a few details that are helpful for us in understanding the big story. One is that when God created, he created, there's a Latin phrase called ex nihilo, meaning he created from nothing. There was no other substance available that God chose to use to create. He created from nothing. He created simply by the power of who he is. It's spoken word, it's think seven times in Genesis 1 and 2, says, and God said, and then there was creation that took place. And for six days he created, on the seventh day he rested. Those are literal days. Uh, the book of Genesis is a historical account. So everything we read in Genesis 1 and 2 is historical. It's not mythological. It's not meant to set some kind of a, you know, teach a higher lesson. It, it's historical in nature. And so we can take it as fact. And so when God created, he created literally from nothing. Now the world has a counter to that. It's called evolution. And when you think of evolution, the biggest problem with evolution is that there is nowhere in existence that we can look to where nothing ever created anything. And so the, for those who would hold to evolution, that's a big problem, is, is where did the elements come from that ultimately led to the Big Bang and everything else that we see? God created from nothing because he is a being who is eternal. He was not created. He is the creator. He is eternal. He exists outside of time, outside of space, and outside of matter. And he chose as an act of his will to create. And so that's what we read of in Genesis 1 and 2. 
Now, there's some implications because on day six, he created mankind. You and I are a part of that. And whenever you read in Scripture, you find in Genesis 1 especially, but in both of those first two chapters, that human life has great value. Your human life has great value. No matter what you've experienced, no matter how much hardship, no matter how old a person may be, no matter how young a person may be, whether that's life in the womb or whether it's a person in the very end stages of life, every single life is valuable because we have been created in the image of God. And so Genesis makes that very, very clear. And we also find there that our purpose is delineated. It's laid out for us in that if we've been created by a creator, then the purpose of our life is to live to that creator's purpose. And the scriptures will actually even go into expressing that specifically, that the overarching purpose of our life is to live to his glory, to live life, whether we work, whether we play, whether in a family setting, in a vocational setting, regardless, we live to his glory. That, that's, that's the command. As his creation, we live to give glory to the one who, who created us. So that's what we focused on last Sunday, specifically, as we started this off with Act 1, creation, we looked at all of those details. Well, today we're going to move into Act 2, the fall, and I want to go back to Genesis chapter 2 just a little bit, and I want to kind of set the stage for what we're going to be looking at in in Genesis chapter 3. So let's back up. In your Bible, you can look back with me to Genesis chapter 2, and let's start in verse 7. We're going to backtrack just a little bit to the Bible's perspective of how he created mankind. He's going to start with Adam. He's going to also create Eve. And so let's start here, Genesis chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 7. So it says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. This is speaking of Adam, a real historic being. This is not figurative. He formed man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden... And there he placed the man whom he had formed. So we see here the beginning of mankind. God has created. He starts with a man named Adam. And when he creates Adam, he creates Adam from the dust of the earth. Now again, for five days, God has already created. And when he creates Adam, he creates him in his own image, and he creates him for a specific purpose, to live for his glory. Now he gives Adam a responsibility In verse 8, it says that he placed Adam in a garden which was in Eden. It sounds like two separate things. There is a region called Eden, and in that region, there is a garden that God had placed there. And it's in that garden that God puts Adam, and he puts him there for a specific responsibility. Look in verse 15. It says, then the Lord God took the man... And he put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So understand that written between the lines, we don't see this laid out in this particular part of the narrative, but understand that somewhere along the way in the book of, book of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God would have also created the angelic beings. Now he doesn't tell us when he created them. We see them listed in the first five or six days of creation there, but it's understood that they would have been created. We understand that because of what's going to happen in Genesis chapter 3. One of those angelic beings that would have been created was one by the name of Lucifer that we would know of as Satan, who would rebel against God in history and would ultimately be cast down. Jesus would even assert this in the book of Luke chapter 10 himself. He would refer to how Satan was cast down specifically. And so all of that would have already happened. All of that would have already taken place. 
And so the, the, the stage is being set. Adam has been placed in this garden. He's been given there a responsibility to cultivate it and to keep it. Understand that work here exists before the fall. Uh, work is not a product of sin. It's not a product of the fall. Painful toil is, <laughs> because you'll see after sin takes place, uh, Adam's work is not going to be with ease. It's going to be difficult. But the concept of work came before the fall. Look down in verse 16 and verse 17. It says, The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you shall eat from it you shall surely die. So what is going on with this tree? We find out later in chapter 3 that the tree is in the middle of the garden. Middle of the garden that is there in Eden. What is going on with this tree? Because some would read this and, and, and think, so what's the big deal? If everything has been created perfectly and God would call it good, even very good, why, why is there a tree here that now God has decided to put some boundaries around and to tell Adam that you cannot eat from this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What's going on with this tree? Well, simple answer is we don't know why God put it there with those boundaries because he doesn't tell us. Right, so anything we come up with is a little bit of, of um, just, just kind of reading into it to some degree. Here's my thought, right or wrong. I think that perhaps God put that tree in the middle of the garden and he gave the command to Adam and ultimately to Eve as well not to eat of that tree because it was a visual reminder and the boundary around it as well, like not the physical literal boundary, but the command not to eat of it, those were reminders. They were visual reminders. Um, they were reminders in their hearing as well, that they were the created, God is the creator, and that their role was to live in subjection to, in submission to, in surrender to God's will and God's command, all right? So God puts in the middle of this garden, he puts a tree, and he says, don't eat of this tree. And every time they'd walk by this tree, every single time, no matter what time of day or night, when they would walk by that tree and they would see that tree there, it would be a reminder of who was in charge, who was sovereign, and who was eternal, and who called the shots, and it wasn't them. And so, so this tree has been placed there, and God gives the command, and he warns them in advance before the fall ever takes place. He says, if you eat of it, I'm telling you, don't eat of it. If you do, in the very day in which you eat of it, you're going to die. <clears throat> Look down at verse 21. Let's skip a few verses, go down to verse 21. In between there, God would name the animals, or Adam would name the animals. He'd give names to the animals as kind of the first parade of animals. The first circus would parade by, and Adam would give them names. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he, God, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Verse 22, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, Genesis... Uh, is a book that means beginnings, and you find a lot of firsts there. In a way, <laughs> it's kind of the first surgery, I guess. God did the first surgery. Those of you in the medical field would appreciate that. And uh, God did a surgery. He uh, performed on Adam. He closed up the place there. He took a rib, and it says in verse 22 that he fashioned. That's a unique Hebrew word. It's not used elsewhere in the Hebrew language. Uh, he fashioned into a woman the rib that he had taken from the man. Verse 23, maybe this is the first Hallmark card, I don't know, but verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam is so inspired by what has taken place. Now, it's funny, somebody showed me after the first service in their translation of Scripture that they use. I think it's the New Living Translation. Verse 23 began with, um, uh, how was it that it said it? Adam exclaimed, at last... That's how the New Living Translation says it. And I wonder, like, at last, that's probably fitting. He's been looking at a bunch of uh, giraffes and hippos and, and, and uh, animals and tigers walking by and give them all names. Finally, he's thinking, like, none of these are suitable for me. And finally, God creates this woman. He's like, at last, you know? And he writes this first Hallmark card where he goes off and he begins to wax eloquent there in, uh, in verse 23. Uh, so, so Adam has now been created. Eve has now been created. Look at what it says about them. Go down to verse 25. And the man and his wife, that's the terminology used there. We don't see anything about a wedding ceremony. We don't know who officiated. We can ultimately assume that it was God who officiated. He declared them man and wife. They were both naked and they were not ashamed. This is before sin would make entrance into God's creation. Now, we don't know how long of a period of time there is between chapter 2 and chapter 3. When chapter 2 ends in verse 25 and chapter 3 begins in chapter 3, verse 1, we don't know what the period of time is there. The Bible doesn't tell us. Now, for what it's worth, my Old Testament professor... Uh, Dr. Galeotti believed that it was two to three months. I have no idea how he came to that conclusion. Certainly, it's not definitive. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know that somewhere in between chapter 2 and chapter 3, there became somewhat of an evil plot that began to be put into place. It's what we could call a plot twist. Now, I don't use that terminology to make it sound as though the Bible is just some other novel out there. It's not. It's God's Word. It's historical. We can trust it. We can bank on it. But you're going to begin to see a twist in the story here, a plot twist to some degree. God creates Adam and Eve, mankind, to walk with him, to know him in relationship, to walk with him in unbroken relationship and fellowship, and to walk with each other in unbroken relationship and fellowship. And, and yet what we're going to find here in chapter 3, remember those angelic beings, remember Satan who had fallen and rebelled against God, God would cast him down from heaven along with the other fallen angels somewhere in that story that had already happened. We're going to find that over the passage of time, we don't know how long that was, that now the enemy is going to make his presence known right here in the garden, right here face to face with Adam and Eve. Everything was perfect. Everything was beautiful. Everywhere that Adam and Eve looked, they saw beauty until one day. Now, God created us, remember, with the capacity to choose. He created us with free will. He didn't create us as robots. He didn't create us in an environment where love would be forced. If, if it's forced love, it's not love. Right? None of you would want that in your relationships. You wouldn't want that with your spouse or with your family members or with your friends. You don't want them to care about you because they have to. There, there are no Hallmark cards that say that, you know, happy anniversary, I only give this and only married you because I had to, right? Those, those would not be very good selling Hallmark cards, right? That's not how love works. Love is by choice. It's not force. When God created mankind, he placed us in an environment. Sin is never his fault. Sin is, is never can be blamed on God, but he did put, place us in an environment that opened the door for sin to occur. Why? Because of the way he created us. He created us to love him by choice, to live a life of worship, to live a life of yieldedness and surrender to him. And so we find now that in this environment, Adam and Eve are going to face a choice of whether to obey the God who created them and in so doing to worship him, or are they going to disobey and in so doing push him to the side? 
few things to keep in mind before, before we move further. There's a few principles to establish. Principle number one in this big story, that's kind of the context we're looking at in the big story. It's, it's Genesis chapter three that describes for us the second act, the fall. So we read of it all right here in Genesis 3. Now the rest of the Bible is going to unpack the ramifications of what happens in Genesis 3. This is a, again, not just a plot twist. This is an unexpected event that Adam and Eve could have never seen coming that's going to have ramifications for the rest of their lives and their families trickling all the way forward to where we are today. The reason you struggle with sin and temptation is because of what we're reading in Genesis 3. The reason that there exists hospitals and cemeteries and funeral homes and uh, hospice units, the reason for all of that is because of what we read here in Genesis chapter 3. Right? So it's act two in the story, it's the fall, second principle, all evil in our world can be traced back to Genesis chapter three. When you think about the most atrocious of evils, when you think about the most atrocious of, of dynasties, when you think about Hitler, when you think about other dynasties in human history, when you think about human trafficking, when you think about uh, 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 drug cartels, when you think about murder, when you think about deceit and about lying, the worst things you can think of right, uh, ultimately trace their way back to what happened here in Genesis chapter 3. Racism, death itself, all of that traces back to Genesis chapter 3. And even on top of that, all suffering in our lives, all suffering in human history traces back to Genesis 3. Whether that suffering comes from disease, whether it comes even from within creation, tornadoes and hurricanes and floods and, and uh, all of those things that occur in history, all suffering traces back to Genesis 3. Whenever we find ourselves standing in a place where a funeral service is taking place, we have to remind ourselves this is not God's fault. Some people really struggle with that. Often when I do a funeral service, I try to interject that point that this is not God's fault. God's original design, Genesis 1 and 2, had no place for death. Death was not part of the picture. Death was not part of the plan. This is not what God had created. Death would come as a result of, it would spin out of man's choice to sin. And we can't be too hard on Adam and Eve because, listen, we've had our opportunities as well to live the perfect life, and not a one of us have done it. It's a part of human history, suffering, disease, brokenness, evil, all of those come out of Genesis chapter 3. And so let's see what Genesis chapter 3 has to say. Let's begin in verse 1. So the the text continues. It says in verse 1, chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So remember, Satan has already been cast down. He makes his appearance here now. Ironically, it's in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, that he's identified here. It doesn't say this is Satan making his appearance. Look at what it says in Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So we know who this is. Right, this is the enemy, this is Satan, this is the devil right here. Literally, not mythologically, not figuratively, this is a historical count. Here he is in the garden, here he is before Adam and Eve, and he's making his presence known. Verse 2 through verse 5, it says, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, 
the touching part is not in Genesis 1 and 2. Maybe Eve added that. I don't know. Or you will die. So why does she have to clarify that? It, well, it's because the, the enemy has come and he's begun to twist and to distort and to plant these seeds of doubt on the veracity, the truthfulness of God and of his word. He's casting doubt now. Oh, did God really say this? He's this shadowy figure, right? This is the way the enemy operates. He always operates in the shadows. It's the shadowy figure kind of, kind of making his presence known here, and he's casting doubt on what God has said. <clears throat> Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. This is an outright lie. Verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, <clears throat> knowing good and evil. <clears throat> so he's casting seeds of doubt. And now he's just outright lying. Now, for the sake of reference here, uh, understand that I want to use an illustration. And I'm not putting myself in God's position. <laughs> I, would, I would not do that. Uh, and you would laugh if I tried to anyway. Uh, but just to, for the sake of trying to understand this, let's imagine that when you came in this morning, uh, let's just imagine that I made the announcement that in, the, in this room you can sit anywhere you want. Anywhere you want. All these seats, however many, 300 seats, whatever, are in here. You can sit wherever you want. But there's one chair that you can't sit in, and if you sit in that one chair, you're going to die. And let's just say I pointed out to you, and I'm not going to point to one now because you may be sitting in it and it'll freak you out. So, so, but there's this one chair, and it's identified. And, and now I don't own this place, right? So I'm not God. I'm, that's where the illustration ends. <laughs> but just, just imagine that for a moment. And, and imagine when I make that announcement that you can sit anywhere you want in here, but there's this one seat that if you sit in it, you're going to die. <clears throat> and imagine there's this shadowy figure kind of over here to the side, and he just sort of interjects his, oh. <laughs> he comes up to you and he says, yeah, I know what he said, but, I mean, if you sit in that seat, come in, is that really what he meant after all? If you sit in that seat, listen, you're not going to die. In fact, if you sit in that seat, you're going you're gonna to have comfort like you've never known. Every other chair you ever sit in is going to be, it's, it's going to be worse. than, than I, I would, hey, I don't know what he was talking about, but I'm just telling you, you're not going to die if you sit in it. Now, what would that shadowy figure be doing? He'd be doing two things. Number one, he would be dismissing me. He would be kind of pushing me to the side, and he would be downplaying my command. And he would be ultimately elevating you and your authority. Because after all, you know what? I do deserve to sit anywhere I want in this place. I mean, I've been walking around this place for a long time, after all. And I, I can sit wherever I want to. And in so doing, it's diminishing God and his authority, and it's raising man and his authority. See, the enemy is very subtle. And oftentimes, some of the worst sins we get into are the sins we think we deserve. Because he didn't tell us the whole story. The enemy didn't. And so he comes here, and he's painting this picture very subtly that God can't be trusted. Now, the enemy does something interesting. I want you to, to notice this. This isn't on the screen behind me, but I want you to follow along with me throughout some verses in chapter 2. And I want you to see the wording in chapter 2 and then the wording that the enemy uses in chapter 3. Uh, let's, let's see how God identify, is identified here in chapter 2. Look down in verse 4. I'm not going to read. I'm just going to pull out little snippets. There's a phrase I'm going to pull out in every one of these. In chapter 2, verse 4, it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. Verse 5, No plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain. 
Verse 7, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east. Verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight. Verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man. Verse 19, I'm sorry, down to verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Verse 22, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. You look even down to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. But when the enemy comes to Eve, look at what he says in verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. How interesting that he doesn't ascribe to God the name that was all throughout chapter 2, the name Lord, which is in all caps there, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It, It translates Yahweh. It is the name for God that is used most often in the Old Testament. It is the name for God, which is his most personal name by which he's to be known. It's the name that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush years later. But when the enemy comes, he leaves out the the, the title for God, Lord. He leaves out the personal name that denotes relationship. He conveniently leaves that out. To the point to where I think we can accurately say that any time we embrace sin in our lives, we are, number one, believing a lie, and number two, we are ultimately distancing ourselves from the lordship of Christ. Because that's how the enemy works. I'm going to plant a seed that's not the full truth, and I'm going to try to separate you from the lordship of Christ in your life. And he did it right here in the garden. And I'm just telling you, he doesn't even need any new tricks because this one works just fine for what he's aiming to accomplish. Back to chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, there was Adam, seemingly saying nothing, and he ate. And what we need to understand is that that moment was where the hinge swung the door outward, out of the presence of God. Up until this point, Adam and Eve had walked with God in unbroken fellowship. They enjoyed the beauty of God's perfect creation. And in this moment, whatever time it was when it happened, we don't know how long it was between when God had created them and when they made this choice, But in this moment, they chose to buy the lie and to put themselves in a position of lordship. And that door swung out of the presence of God. To the point to where we would see that every person since then would be born with a nature to sin. It's why we don't have to treat little children, two, three, four years old, to do what's wrong they already know. We have to train them to do what's right. There's a nature for sin in every one of us. And the result of this was that every person would then be separated from God and in need of rescue. Ephesians, Paul is writing the letter to the Christians in Ephesus. And in Ephesians chapter 2, he describes it this way. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You see, God had said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, Adam and Eve didn't die that very day. Yeah, they did. They died spiritually. They were separated from God. You're going to see that in a second in verse 7. They died spiritually on the inside. Everything changed. Everything was impacted. 
You get to Genesis chapter 4, and you're going to find that Adam and Eve are going to be standing over the dead body of their son, Abel, who was murdered at the hands of his brother, Cain. And the only thing they can say as they stand over the dead body of their son, Abel, is look what we've done. Death did come, and their death would come. And you get to Genesis chapter 5, and you read name after name after name that tells that so-and-so lived X amount of years, and then he died. So-and-so lived X amount of years, and then he died. Read that tonight if you have a hard time going to sleep. It's a lot of names and a lot of people that lived a long time, but every one of them died. What God said was true. The wages of that sin would be death, Paul would say in Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Look at verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, right, because of our sin, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. What does this mean? It's not a popular, easy-to-hear teaching, but we see it in Scripture that God, because he's just, we'll break this down a little more next week when we talk about redemption, but God is a God who is just, He's a God who is true, and he's a God who is right, and he has to judge sin. And and, and for those who have sinned, all of us included, there is a point in our lives, until we find our Redeemer, right, until we place our faith in Christ, God's wrath hangs over us. And, And we think, well, why is that? Because God has to judge sin. We have words for people who don't judge sin rightly. If a judge in a court of law sees a known murderer in front of him and then lets that person go and sweeps it under the rug, we have a phrase for them. It's called an unjust judge, right, who ultimately we feel should be locked up for what they've done as well. God has to judge sin. And without a Savior, we have his wrath hanging over us. It's a dreadful picture. It's not where the story ends, but this is why Paul says in, in, in Ephesians 2, verse 3, by nature, by nature we were children of wrath, even as the rest, like everybody else. And the thing is, Satan is still running rampant in this world, and he's still opening his big mouth, and he's still questioning God in so many different ways. He questions God in our culture. He questions God in our own individual lives. He, 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 he's making his presence known just as he did in the Garden of Eden, just as he did face-to-face, so to speak, with Adam and Eve. He's still making his presence known, and he's still showing up, and he's showing up saying, hey, what, what, what about drugs and alcohol? Why don't you let this fix your problem? Well, that's not going to fix anything. It's going to only compound the problem. And he says, well, what about sexual immorality? After all, don't you deserve to have pleasure? in your life on your terms that's not going to create pleasure but for a season that's only going to pack more and more and more baggage that's going to one day have to be unpacked and the enemy continues to come and he says well what about suicide you know what just take yourself out of here that's never God's plan and, and the enemy keeps opening his big mouth in the media, through the politics, in this fallen world, and he continues to beckon us to a place that God never intends for us to go and all along the way God says I've got a better plan for you And I've got healing for your life that no bottle and no needle and no relationship and nothing else can provide for you. I've got what lasts forever. And the enemy keeps selling his lies. And he keeps leading people like us down a road of regret and shame and guilt. Look at what it says back in Genesis chapter 3 again. Look at what it says in verse 7. Eve took of the fruit... Her husband with her ate also. Verse 7, and then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loin coverings. Verse 8, perhaps one of the saddest verses in the Bible. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. By the way, the Lord God, he's still Lord. And the man and his wife hid themselves. Can you imagine? From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The God who had created them. Who had created them in purity with a capacity to live forever in his unbroken presence, unbroken fellowship, relationship. Surrounded by nothing but perfect beauty. They're now hiding from him. And by the way, what's up? The whole deal with the fig leaves. They're trying to cover themselves, their sin, the effects of their sin, in a way that is completely insufficient. And we've been doing that ever since. Shame made its first entrance into human experience in Genesis chapter 3. Guilt made its first entrance into human experience in Genesis chapter 3, on the heels of our sin and rebellion against God. By the way, speaking of those fig leaves, the principle is there is that ever since the fall, we've been hiding from God and trying to resolve sin in our own way. But notice what God would do. Genesis 3, verse 21. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin, far more sufficient, still temporary, but far more sufficient than fig leaves. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Don't read past that too quickly. Let your mind go to what that looked like. Garments of skin. God didn't go to the Eden Target to buy that. All right. He took a couple of animals, perhaps, that he had created that until that point, just a few moments before, had lived in an environment of perfection and perfect beauty. And he killed those animals. And Adam and Eve saw what death looked like as the blood of those animals would spill onto the ground for the sole purpose of providing some better yet still temporary covering for the effects of their sin. Death came that day. You know, it's a powerful picture. <clears throat> Though there's no mention made of that being a sacrifice, it's a powerful foreshadowing picture of a sacrificial system that would come later in the Old Testament where sacrifices would be provided to pay for a season for the sins of fallen Israel. Sin always carries cost. As we've been reading in a book study for us as men, about 40, 45 men on Tuesday mornings have been coming early up here reading through a book together. They made the comment a few weeks ago that sin will always take you further than you plan to go, keep you longer than you plan to stay, and cost you far more than you ever planned to pay. No one would know this better than Adam and Eve. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Remember, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, picture of the Trinity there, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. He sent him out from the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken, so he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life, a tremendous picture of grace here as God staying forever in that state, God would pave the pathway for a coming Messiah until we get to the Gospels. 
humanity would await. Savior, Messiah, God in the flesh, Jesus, who would come to pay for sin once and for all. Final principle today is that only that relationship with Jesus can remove our sin. Next Sunday, we're going to unpack that, what that means, Act 3, redemption. But let me just say this morning that if you've found yourself under the weight of sin and you've never experienced the forgiveness that only God can bring, meaning you've never turned from it the best you can and invited Jesus to forgive and take over your life, if you've never done that, why go another moment and let sin characterize you for who you are? Why go another moment under the wrath of God that is just and that is due for our sin? Why not experience his forgiveness and a clean slate and a brand new start that comes when even now, right where you sit, you say, Lord Jesus, I have blown it and I believe you've died and risen for me. Forgive and save me and he'll do it. And if you've made that choice, man, how much... How much is your life today characterized by sin that continues unchecked in your life? And I know none of us have arrived and none of us are perfect, starting with the guy preaching this message. But we need to be reminded at times that when sin lingers, it only costs us and those around us. If there's sin in your life today that needs to go, why not confess it, agree with God, Lord, I've done this, and I accept your forgiveness. Would you help me to walk with you forward? in a life that honors you. And Christian, if you already know him through Christ, what First John tells us is that he'll not only forgive it, but he'll cleanse you from that unrighteousness for you to walk forward in grace. Let's pray. Lord, so many implications that come out of Genesis 3. It's so easy for us to see. Genesis 3 explains why there's war in this world, why there's disease in this world, why there's tragedy in this world, why there's suffering. And it's not because of you. You created us in perfection, God. We can't blame you. It's because of the outflow of our own sin. And you even warned Adam and Eve. And Lord, we can't be too hard on them because given the chance, we've done the same thing. But God, we thank you that in the midst of even our own sin, Lord, that you loved us and that you chose to come. When Jesus came, it was you, God, coming for us. And when he died and when he rose again, it was that perfect sacrifice and substitute so that we, fallen people, separated from you, deserving of your wrath, can have forgiveness, can have grace, and experience your mercy, and have life eternal the way, you did, the way you designed it in the first place. As we turn from our sin and invite Jesus to forgive us and to save us, as we yield our lives to him, to follow him. And Lord, for those that have never done that, right where they sit today, may they make that choice. May they invite you, Jesus, to forgive and take over. And for those of us that have, Lord, help us to walk closely with you, keeping a distance from sin. Thank you for your conviction, God, and when you convict us of it, help us to confess it and to put it away and to live a life that honors you. Lord, thank you for Act 3, redemption. Thank you for Act 4, restoration. God, may we walk in light of that truth. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.